You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's Sunday, May 1st, 1803, at the Palais des Tuileries near the Louvre in Paris, France. It's just after dinner, and in the salon, the palace guests mingle, foreign dignitaries, French diplomats, and Paris's power brokers. Among them, James Monroe, the U.S. Special Commissioner to France. Monroe is in Paris to help secure the Louisiana Territory for the U.S. As Monroe takes in his lush surroundings, Jefferson's words echo in his head. All eyes, all hopes are now fixed on you. Monroe's thoughts are interrupted, though, when he feels a gentle hand on his elbow, Mr. Monroe. Monroe turns to find the most powerful man in France standing before him, Napoleon Bonaparte, the first consul. The little corporal is all smiles. I trust you enjoyed your dinner, sir. Oui, monsieur. You speak French. A little, monsieur. I'm delighted to hear it. Did you have a good voyage, Mr. Monroe? Yes, monsieur. You came on a frigate? No, monsieur, a merchant ship charged for the purpose. I am here, as you know, to discuss a matter of, well, a matter of tremendous importance to Mr. Jefferson. Napoleon takes him gently by the elbow and leads him through the crowd of guests. There will be plenty of time for business. Tonight, though, let us talk of other things, as you wish, monsieur. So tell me, has the federal city grown quite a bit? Oh, it has, monsieur. Napoleon stops walking suddenly. He makes sure the coast is clear, and then he discreetly asks, How old is President Jefferson? About 60. Is he married? He is a widower. Any children? Two daughters, monsieur, both married. Does he reside in the federal city? Generally, monsieur. Are the public buildings there commodious? Especially the ones for Congress and the president? They are indeed. Napoleon sizes Monroe up for the moment. From the look on his face, Monroe can tell the first consul has more on his mind than architecture. Napoleon leans in close. You Americans did brilliant things in your war with England. Well, thank you, Monsieur. You will do the same again. We shall, I am persuaded, always behave well when it be our lot to be in war. Napoleon smiles. He leans in even closer and whispers confidentially, You may probably be in war with them again. I do not know, Monsieur. That would be an important question to decide, should there be an occasion for it. Napoleon smiles again, a devilish glint in his eye. Well, there will be, Mr. Monroe. Of this, there is no doubt. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost. And recently, they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. When James Monroe went to France in 1803 to secure the Louisiana Territory, war with Great Britain was not on his mind, but his political future was. Prior to his departure, Jefferson assured Monroe that his mission to France, if successful, would guarantee his future presidency. Jefferson was right. The Louisiana Purchase doubled the size of the U.S., secured Jefferson's legacy, and bolstered Monroe's political reputation. But Napoleon was right, too. Before Monroe became president, he served as James Madison's Secretary of State. In the country's hour of need, President Madison, like Jefferson before him, put his hopes in James Monroe. The Revolutionary War veteran from Virginia rose to the occasion. His actions during the War of 1812 helped save the country from ruin, solidified his national reputation, and defined the landscape of the 1816 contest. This is Episode 8, 1816, The Virginia Dynasty. In the summer of 1812, James Monroe wanted out of the State Department. He was tired of sitting behind a desk. He wanted a military command. At the outset of war with Great Britain, President Madison's plan was to attack the British by invading Canada. Monroe, a Revolutionary War veteran, strongly supported the strategy. He believed that conquering Canada would force the British to the negotiating table. President Madison initially contemplated giving Monroe command of the Canadian invasion, but ultimately Madison changed his mind, 
worried about a backlash from other officers who outranked Monroe, just a lowly colonel. So Monroe considered taking command of a volunteer regiment from Virginia. In the end, though, after consulting his most trusted friends and advisors, Monroe declined. He determined that he could do more good in Washington than he could in the field commanding a minor militia. Because the U.S. was at war, and Monroe believed that Secretary of State was a role of secondary importance. As Monroe saw it, the real power in the cabinet was in the office of the War Department. Monroe had his eye on a future presidential bid. Defeating the British as War Secretary would certainly help that cause. But there was another, more immediate reason Monroe wanted the reins of America's military power. His country was losing the fight. From the very start, the U.S. was outmatched and ill-equipped to fight the British. The fledgling nation had no national bank and no reserves to pay for troops or supplies. And on the domestic front, opposition to the war was mounting. Federalists in New England and New York opposed Mr. Madison's war, as they called it, largely on economic grounds. Legislatures in states like Massachusetts and Connecticut even refused to provide militias for the cause. On its surface, Madison's strategy of taking Canada was a sensible one that played into America's advantages. American troops were already on North American soil. They could mobilize quickly and easily get the best of a poorly defended Canada. But in the attempt to carry out Madison's plan, the U.S. suffered a series of crippling defeats. In August of 1812, the British conquered Detroit. American General William Hull, fearing a massacre of his troops, surrendered without firing a single shot, thus giving the British control of Lake Erie and the entire Michigan Territory. This embarrassing surrender of Detroit fanned the already growing anti-war sentiment all across the country. Secretary of State James Monroe called General Hull's leadership weak, indecisive, and pusillanimous. Monroe wrote to Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, I most sincerely wish that the president could dispose of me at this juncture in the military line. I would, in a very few days, join our forces assembling beyond the Ohio. And so Monroe went to Madison, asking for a military command so that he might ride into battle and recover lost ground, but Madison denied him. A few months later, after Madison's current Secretary of War resigned, Monroe was named Acting Secretary of War. Monroe and Madison both hoped the War Office appointment would be permanent, but Congress had other plans in mind. In January of 1813, one Federalist politician declared on the floor of the House that it was a curious fact that for these 12 years past, the whole affairs of this country have been managed under the influence of two Virginians. It was clear that Madison intended to make a third Virginian, Monroe, his successor. But many had grown wary of the so-called Virginia dynasty, started by Thomas Jefferson and carried forward by James Madison. This Virginia fatigue was prevalent in both parties. The Federalists and their opponents, the Democratic Republicans, or as they often called themselves, just Republicans. As a result, members of Congress were reluctant to do anything that would help Monroe position himself for the presidency, including confirming him as Secretary of War. Once it became clear that Monroe would likely not be confirmed by the Senate, Madison was forced to go into a different direction. As a consolation, Madison promised Monroe a military command, lieutenant general in command of the Northern Army. But Monroe's replacement, Secretary of War John Armstrong, complicated matters because Armstrong had presidential ambitions of his own 
And in an attempt to deny Monroe any further glory, Armstrong convinced President Madison to rescind the promise he made to Monroe, who would for the foreseeable future remain at the State Department, watching from Washington as a bad start to the war turned worse. It's August 9, 1814, on the Potomac River, just off the shore of Virginia. American agent John Stuart Skinner stands on the deck of a British warship, the HMS Albion. Before him stands a notoriously cruel British officer, Rear Admiral George Cockburn. The papers call him the Great Bandit, but American sailors call him by another name more befitting his barbarous nature, Attila the Hun. But Skinner is not in immediate danger. He's been on board Cockburn's ship many times before, and he's always been given safe passage. Still, Skinner knows Cockburn's a dangerous man, so he proceeds with caution. Admiral Cockburn, a pleasure, as always. The pleasure is mine, as always. How are you, Skinner? I have no complaints, Admiral. May I offer you something to eat or drink? No, thank you. You're always welcome on my ship, Skinner. As far as Americans go, I find you tolerable. Thank you, Admiral. Skinner is no stranger to Admiral Cockburn or his droll sense of humor. Skinner is America's official prisoner of war agent, carrying communications between the U.S. and the British, and dealing with men like Admiral Cockburn is his job. Skinner's here today to deliver official communications from the State Department. These are for you, Admiral. Dispatches from Secretary Monroe. Excellent. I have something for the Secretary as well. With a devilish grin, Cockburn hands Skinner a stack of newspapers. These are for Secretary Monroe, sir? Yes, I thought Mr. Monroe might like to read the musings of the British press on the subject of Mr. Madison's war. Needless to say, the British papers feel the prospects for peace are discouraging. Any news from the front? The fighting in July was severe, on the Niagara frontier in particular. They say the battles at Chippewa and Lundy's Lane are the bloodiest of the war to date. You see? Discouraging. There is cause for hope, Admiral. Peace talks have begun. Cockburn can hardly contain his laughter. <laughs> oh, I know the British commanders in Ghent. They're a pitifully mediocre lot. I wouldn't hold out much hope. There is always hope for peace, sir. Certainly Mr. Madison has demonstrated his mind on that subject. Though it's Mr. Monroe's mind that interests me the most. Tell me, Mr. Skinner, how does your Secretary of State feel about the state of the war? Does he desire Mr. Madison's peace? I can't say, Admiral. I only know that Mr. Madison has high hopes for an amicable end to this bloody conflict. Well, I do hate to disappoint. Cockburn flashes Skinner another wicked smirk. But I'm afraid Mr. Madison will just have to put on his armor and fight it out. I see nothing left. But there was something Rear Admiral Cockburn saw. A brilliant strategy to put Great Britain's boot on America's throat. Cockburn had initially been deployed to the Chesapeake Bay as part of a plan to draw U.S. troops away from Canada. But once there, Cockburn saw an even greater opportunity, a chance to sack the U.S. Capitol and put an end to the war once and for all. Cockburn's scheme would put President Madison's back against the wall, but it would also finally give James Monroe the opportunity to get into the fight. On July 17, 1814, Cockburn had submitted to his superiors a secret plan to capture the capital of the United States. Under President Madison, or Little Jemmy as Admiral Cockburn liked to call him, the U.S. was on the verge of collapse. Cockburn wrote to his commander, 
It is quite impossible for any country to be in a more unfit state for war than this now is. In August of 1814, the British fleet sailed into Chesapeake Bay and landed thousands of troops on the shores of Maryland, less than 50 miles southeast of Washington. In response, James Monroe sent an urgent message to Secretary of War John Armstrong. Monroe urged Armstrong to evacuate the capital and remove all essential documents and personnel. Armstrong rejected Monroe's recommendation. He believed the British were more likely to attack Baltimore. Monroe would later write, An infatuation seemed to have taken possession of General Armstrong relative to the danger of this place. He could never be made to believe it was in any danger. When the enemy were within ten miles by a direct route and marching against it, he treated the idea with contempt. So instead of defending the capital, Armstrong redeployed the bulk of the capital's defenses to Fort Washington, a dozen miles south of the capital. The remaining 250 troops marched to Bladensburg, ten miles to the east. Monroe, though, quickly put his family on a coach and sent them to safety in Loudoun County. He procured a small fleet of boats, loaded them up with State Department documents as well as his personal effects, and sailed the boats upstream. Monroe took arms, rounded up a couple dozen cavalry troops, and rode off into the night to gather intelligence on the enemy. On the morning of August 21st, Monroe sent President Madison a dire message. The Brits were marching on Washington, 5,000 men strong. Monroe urged President Madison to call up troops from Virginia and defend the capital at all costs. Madison relayed Monroe's intelligence to Armstrong and ordered his Secretary of War to comply with Monroe's recommendation. Armstrong, though, ignored the president's order. For Madison, it was the last straw. Armstrong was reprimanded and removed. President Madison took control over the military, and he named Monroe first in command. Monroe quickly ordered more troops to Bladensburg to shore up the minuscule force of 250 men, but it was too little too late. In a humiliating defeat, the American forces were routed. The defeated troops fled to the capital. Amidst the chaos, Monroe rode his horse into the stampede of fleeing soldiers and forced them into formation. He ordered the troops to Baltimore and urged Madison to evacuate Washington and remove all valuable historical documents and public records. Monroe himself stayed in Washington until the last possible moment, just before eight that night when the British began to enter the capital. He fled on horseback, crossing the Potomac and finding safety at a nearby mansion where, incidentally, the president's wife, Dolly, had also taken refuge. From there, Monroe and Mrs. Madison watched the sky change colors as Washington began to burn. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com.
Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them. But the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's August 28, 1814, in Washington. The British have left the capital behind due to inclement weather. President Madison and his newly appointed Secretary of War pro tem, James Monroe, assess the damage. The president's house is destroyed. Civilian homes are burnt to the ground. The dome of the Capitol building is reduced to a smoldering pile of ashes. A steady stream of citizens pour into the city, fleeing the wrath of nearby British forces outside. A group of civilians run up to Madison, wide-eyed and fearful. Among them, a federal employee named Dr. William Thornton. Mr. President, may I have a word, sir? Monroe looks to Madison, who shrinks away from Thornton. The president seems shattered and woebegone, shaken to his core. Still, Madison musters a controlled reply. Of course, how can I be of service? Fort Washington has fallen, Mr. President. General Winder surrendered to the British without firing a single shot. The British will march again on the capital, sir, and we shall muster our forces and defend it. Thornton swallows his tongue, but Madison can see he has something to say. Speak your mind, sir. As the only federal employee who remained in the capital during the British invasion, I speak with the authority of the citizenry. Mr. President, the people of Washington request that you dispatch a deputation of citizens to speak with the commander of the British squadron. For what purpose? To surrender the capital, sir. Monroe winces in disgust. For him, surrender is not an option. He looks again at Madison, but he is unsure of what next to say. He wavers for a moment before pressing his point. No, we must defend the capital. With respect, sir, the situation is hopeless. There's not time enough to prepare an adequate defense. We must surrender. No, sir, we will not. Thornton and the crowd of civilians turn to Monroe, as does the president. Monroe grasps the hilt of his sword and steps into the middle of the crowd, his eyes fiery with passion. Gentlemen, the president has spoken. There will be no surrender. But Mr. Secretary, if any deputation of citizens moves toward the enemy, it will be repelled by the bayonet. We will defend the capital or die doing it. Monroe climbs on his horse and unsheaths his sword. He calls out to the crowd of civilians, Our capital is under attack! Those who are not too cowardly to do so must help me defend it. In the country's darkest hour, President Madison appointed Secretary of State James Monroe the Secretary of War pro tem, making Monroe the only official in U.S. history to serve two cabinet posts at the same time. Monroe was made the supreme military commander with full authority over the command of war, finally giving him his military command. But the country was in bad shape and the capital, Washington, smoldering. The War of 1812 was his to lose.
As War Secretary, James Monroe worked tirelessly. In the days and weeks after his appointment, he hardly slept. On the rare occasion that he did get rest, he slept on a camp cot so that he could stay close to the action. He repositioned some 7,000 militiamen and placed cannons at strategic defensive points around the city. He called up militia from other states, lined the Potomac with artillery, and set up a system of gathering and transmitting information in and out of Washington. Monroe's quick defense of Washington forced the British to set their sights on another target, Baltimore. Washington may have been saved, but to win the war, Monroe knew he needed money. So he demanded that Congress convene for the purpose of providing more ample funds, establishing a national bank, and doing everything that will give energy to this government and success to the war. Monroe would push Congress to raise troop pay, to incentivize recruitment, and create a sizable standing army. At Monroe's urging, the Madison administration would ask Congress to create a second bank of the United States with a $50 million line of credit to pay for the cost of the war. When Congress pushed back, Monroe set aside his limited government principles and borrowed millions of dollars on his own signature. A lifelong anti-federalist and Republican, Monroe was a constitutionalist at heart. He knew well the dangers that a standing army and an unbridled executive branch could pose to a nation's liberty. But Monroe also understood there would be no country if he lost the war. His efforts to create a second national bank failed, but Monroe would succeed in getting a standing army. He would use that army to beat back the British. By mid-September 1814, the British had given up hope of capturing Baltimore. They withdrew their troops and sailed out of Chesapeake Bay in defeat. But even as the tide of the war began to turn, anti-war sentiment in Congress continued to swell. Opposition to Mr. Madison's war became the central platform of the opposition party, the Federalists. The Federalist Party had been adrift since the death of its intellectual leader, Alexander Hamilton, in 1804. They had only elected one president, John Adams, in 1796, and both houses of Congress had been dominated by the Republicans for well over a decade. In the midterm elections of 1814, though, the Federalist Party saw a resurgence thanks in part to their anti-war position. The party gained legislative majorities in New England, Maryland, and Delaware, and formidable minorities in New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. During the War of 1812, the political sands of American politics were shifting in unprecedented ways. Republicans in Congress seemed to co-opt Federalist policies like protective tariffs, a standing army, a stronger navy, and a second bank of the United States. In opposition to Madison, Federalists found themselves advocating against many of their defining principles. As former President John Adams observed, our two great parties have crossed over the valley and taken possession of each other's mountain. The anti-war sentiment reached its peak in December of 1814, when Federalists from Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont convened in Hartford, Connecticut for closed-door deliberations. Ostensibly, the purpose of the meeting, which would come to be called the Hartford Convention, was innocent enough. Being on the East Coast, New England was vulnerable to British invasion. New Englanders who opposed the war wanted to discuss their common grievances and create a plan for New England's defense. But President Madison suspected they had other motives. Throughout the fall of 1814, rumors of New England's secession had been circulating in the press. President Madison feared New England might band together, secede from the Union, and negotiate a separate peace with Great Britain. 
James Monroe shared Madison's concern. In an effort to keep tabs on the convention, Monroe sent an agent, Colonel Thomas Jessup, to spy on the men convening there and report back on any secessionist activities. Monroe also sent a warning to the governor of New York, telling him to call up the militia and have them make ready to march on Hartford. Less than a week after the convention began, Monroe received a report from Jessup. According to his agent, the pro-secession Federalists were a minority. They lacked the necessary support to constitute a legitimate threat. Monroe promptly ordered the New York militia to stand down. Less than a week after the Federalists gathered in Hartford to discuss their opposition to Mr. Madison's war, the War of 1812 officially came to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. But the question of who won the war was not clear-cut. Nearly 2,000 Americans were killed. 4,000 were wounded. The war cost millions of dollars in supply and materiel and millions more in lost revenue from trade. The war all but caused the collapse of the economy and sent the U.S. into national bankruptcy. The peace negotiations, like the war itself, ended in a stalemate too. As part of the treaty, the British returned captured territory near Lake Superior in Michigan and in Maine back to the U.S. The U.S. returned land it captured in Canada back to Britain. Nearly everything was back to where it was before the war began. Still, Madison had beaten back the British invasion, and the American people relished in the perceived victory. The U.S. had once again defeated the most powerful nation on earth in what many Americans dubbed the Second War of Independence. So Madison declared victory and rode a wave of popular opinion. His political opponents, the Federalists, found their opposition to the war suddenly unpopular, and their talk of secession at the Hartford Convention turned public favor even further against them, branding the party as traitors. The blowback was so severe that in the end, the Federalists didn't feel the national candidate in the election of 1816. What little effort they did muster went towards selecting Rufus King, the former senator from New York, as their candidate. But King knew he didn't stand a chance. In one letter, he would write, The Federal Party, in the sense of a party aiming at political power, no longer exists. King suggested that the best strategy in the election of 1816 was for the Federalists to give their influence to the least wicked section of the Republicans. King was not alone in his pessimism. In May of 1816, the editor of the Richmond Inquirer wrote, Why waste your talents in fruitless opposition? The sun of the Federal Party has set forever. In King's mind, and in the minds of many Federalists, the party's anti-war stance had united the people and the many factions of the Republican Party permanently against them. But if the Republicans were united against the Federalists, they were not united in their vision of the country's future. After 16 years of leadership under three Virginian presidents, many Republicans were ready for the Virginia dynasty to end. Nowhere was this sentiment stronger than in the country's most populous state, New York. So if Virginian James Monroe wanted to secure his party's nomination, he would have to unite multiple factions behind him and overcome growing opposition in the key battleground state of New York. In this fight for the White House, Monroe would get a helping hand from a state senator from New York and future president, Martin Van Buren. By the mid-1810s, New York was tired of playing second fiddle to Virginia. So New York Republicans put forward a candidate of their own, Daniel D. Tompkins, a popular New York politician who had acquitted himself well as the wartime governor of New York. 
But even for a popular candidate like Governor Tompkins, the path to securing the support of the New York Republicans was rocky. One New York congressman, Jonathan Fisk, had serious concerns about Tompkins, writing to a colleague that Governor Tompkins was too young and volatile, lacking the gravity, dignity, and grave responsibility of that elevated station. Still, Tompkins was hugely popular in his state, and in spite of the many reservations, a large voting bloc of New York Republicans threw their support behind him for president. The leader of this pro-Tompkins coalition was State Senator Martin Van Buren, a brilliant political tactician whose schemes and ploys on the campaign trail would earn him the nickname, The Little Magician. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's December 1815 in Washington. On the crowded floor of the House, two New York congressmen confer in hushed, discreet tones. Jabez Hammond and James Birdsdall of Shenango County. Mr. Birdsdall, what are your thoughts on a Monroe presidency? Well, I, for one, have had my fill of a Virginian in the White House. You? Yes. The only question is, who can defeat him? What do you say to Governor Tompkins? He was a fine wartime governor. Still, the governor's mansion is one thing. The White House is another. Surely you prefer Governor Tompkins to Secretary Monroe. Over Secretary Monroe, I preferred King George III, though I believe Secretary Crawford is a far more viable alternative. Well, don't tell that to Governor Tompkins. I'm afraid he's already aware. He thinks his fellow New Yorkers too unkindly in our course. He feels we've abandoned him prematurely. Well, perhaps he's right. Tompkins is a fine man. Yes, he is, but you must realize he cannot defeat Monroe. Tompkins is known in New York, but in the South, his name carries no weight at all. The poor fellow doesn't stand a chance. Only a Southerner of repute can defeat Mr. Monroe. A Southerner of repute like War Secretary Crawford. Precisely. But Secretary Crawford hails from Virginia. Does that not concern you? Crawford's a Georgia man and has been since he left Virginia as a child. Besides, as far as his parentage is concerned, he comes from a plebeian stock, not an aristocratic one. They call him the farmer's boy. He's a self-made man, not to mention Judge Spencer has already thrown his support behind Secretary Crawford. The judge has more influence over New York Republicans than, than anyone, not more than Mr. Van Buren, perhaps. 
But surely Mr. Van Buren would agree with the judge's assessment. <clears throat> I would agree with what assessment? Birdstall and Hammond turn to find the New York State Senator Martin Van Buren standing right behind them. Hammond smiles and warmly takes Van Buren by the hand. Mr. Van Buren, what brings you to the Capitol? I am here on business. Well, how fortuitous. Please, tell us, whom ought we support for president in the upcoming election? Van Buren's shoulders droop. With little emotion and not a shred of enthusiasm in his voice, Van Buren replies, Oh, we say Tompkins, of course. And without another word, Van Buren leaves. Birdstall and Hammond exchange a curious glance. Well, uh, I do believe that was a rather cold and odd response. Yes, not exactly a resounding endorsement. Indeed, it wasn't. In December of 1815, in the run-up to the election of 1816, the little magician Martin Van Buren had a trick up his sleeve. In 1816, New York Republicans were torn between two candidates, Governor Tompkins and Secretary Crawford. In the spring of 1816, Martin Van Buren would step onto the scene and use his considerable political acumen to settle the question. In doing so, he would deprive both Tompkins and Crawford their chance at the White House, leaving the door open for James Monroe and ensuring eight more years of the Virginia dynasty. In New York in 1815, there was a power struggle going on between two Republicans, Judge Ambrose Spencer and State Senator Martin Van Buren. Spencer and his camp were pro-Crawford. Van Buren and his camp were pro-Tompkins. But by December of 1815, all signs pointed to Crawford winning the presidential nomination in New York and possibly across the nation. Crawford was the most popular choice amongst national congressmen by far. As a senator, he had served as the president pro tempore of the Senate after Vice President George Clinton passed away in 1812. He had served with dignity as the U.S. minister to France before being appointed Madison's war secretary in August of 1815. Van Buren favored Tompkins, though, but he also saw the writing on the wall. Tompkins had no chance of winning on the national level. It left Van Buren to walk a political tightrope. If he abandoned Tompkins and tried to bring forward a different candidate, his own pro-Tompkins supporters would probably turn on him, leaving him a general without an army. Publicly supporting Monroe was a non-starter because of the prevailing anti-Virginia sentiment in New York. And if Van Buren supported Crawford, he would be bowing to the will of Judge Spencer, his rival, and a man he called arrogant and vindictive. In the end, Van Buren decided that a James Monroe presidency was better than giving Crawford the White House and giving Judge Spencer dominion over him in New York. So Van Buren put into play what historian Robert V. Remini called a daring and unique plan. Van Buren would publicly maintain allegiance to Tompkins while working in secret to bring about Monroe's nomination and hopefully handing Tompkins the vice presidency. To achieve this, Van Buren played both sides. According to one congressman, in New York, Mr. Van Buren was ardent in the support of Tompkins. At Washington, to say the least, he was philosophically calm and cool. On February 14, 1816, the New York State Legislature met in Albany. There, the little magician worked his magic. The state legislature passed resolutions opposing Crawford and instead threw their support behind Tompkins. Three days later, that same legislature created a committee to determine if Tompkins could win the presidency. Their conclusion was grim. Tompkins had no chance on the national level, 
But if he withdrew from the race and his supporters united with William Crawford, Monroe would likely not be elected. As a result of these findings, a pro-Crawford resolution almost made it to the floor of the New York legislature, but Van Buren supporters shot it down, abruptly ending the legislative session before the resolution could be adopted. While Van Buren was pulling the strings in New York, in Georgia, William Crawford was growing wary of the idea of even running for president, especially against Madison's heir apparent, James Monroe. Crawford had told one New York congressman that he only wished to put his name forward for the presidency if New York's support was guaranteed. When he learned that New York might go the way of Tompkins, Crawford withdrew from the race, telling his colleagues in Georgia to make his decision known to the press. Van Buren, upon learning of Crawford's decision, wrote to a colleague, I had no hesitation in communicating it to my friends here. But Crawford's supporters did not stop pushing his candidacy. In February 1816, a group of anti-Virginia congressmen met in Washington to devise a way to secure the nomination for Crawford. But Crawford wanted no part of it. He was worried that openly campaigning against Monroe was a losing proposition and would hurt his chances at future elections. Crawford and his supporters struck a deal. Crawford would allow them to vote for him as long as they promised to make clear to the press that he did not want to be elected and had taken no part in his name being brought forward. When the National Republican Caucus met in March of 1816, Monroe won the nomination over Crawford 65-54, to 54, a margin of 11 votes. Governor Tompkins was nominated for the vice presidency. Crawford supporters did not make good on their promise, though. No statement was ever issued to the press on Crawford's behalf, and Crawford would write, I think I have serious cause for complaint against my particular friends. In Washington, James Monroe was little more than a casual observer to the drama happening in New York. Like his predecessors, Monroe did not openly campaign for president. Neither did the de facto Federalist candidate Rufus King, whose Federalist Party did not even hold formal nominations or launch an official campaign. On December 4, 1816, when the presidential electors met, Federalists from a handful of states hopelessly cast their votes for King. But James Monroe won handily, 183-34. to 34. Though Rufus King lost, he still made history. He would be the last ever Federalist to win an electoral vote for the office of the president. Secretary Crawford maintained that the election of 1816 was clearly in my reach if I had been ambitious of it. To a certain extent, he might be right. New York might have decided the election in Crawford's favor were it not for Martin Van Buren's political maneuverings. Van Buren's scheme helped Monroe take the White House, secured another eight years of the Virginia dynasty, and ushered in what would come to be known as the Era of Good Feelings. But the Era of Good Feelings was a misnomer. As president, Monroe would largely continue President Madison's economic policies, the reinstatement of a national bank, protective tariffs, and government-funded improvements. These policies, which had once been the foundational principles of the Federalists, would be fully co-opted by the Republican Monroe. The backlash in his own party would be severe. During Monroe's first term, he would face a bitterly divided Republican Party and a devastating economic crisis. The old Republican Federalist order, known as the First Party System, would topple. In its place, a new political system, but the same political clashes. 
This is Episode 8 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1816, the Virginia Dynasty. On the next episode, the election of 1820, the era of good feelings sets the stage for the third and last uncontested presidential election in American history. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West, from famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details, and while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Barons. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.